0: Got Acts 15? Well, we dove into verse 36 last week where we saw Paul was wanting to follow up some converts that had come to Christ during the first missionary journey that he and Barnabas were on. Paul was wanting to return to some of the same cities where they had faced some significant trouble. In fact, some of the uh, uh, Jewish religious leaders were persecuting Paul and Barnabas. In fact, We know that at one time Paul was even stoned, and yet he's wanting to go back to these same areas to follow them up, to build them in the faith. And we talked last week about how this kind of equipping, this kind of discipleship is hard, and it usually goes against the typical American church model, you know, which is kind of entertainment driven, and certainly it goes against the wider societal model culture. Now the interesting thing is, is that here is Paul and Barnabas, two respected leaders of the early church who had just been at a, uh, what was called the Jerusalem council, like a church conference that was addressing legalism. There were some Jewish believers that were saying that people needed to follow some Jewish law before they came to Christ, particularly circumcision. This Jerusalem council met and they said, no. We don't think that's necessary, that uh, Gentile, Jew alike, just need to believe the gospel, and that's enough to actually be reconciled to God. So, grace won at that Jerusalem council, and then days after that, Paul and Barnabas get into a huge argument. At issue was Barnabas' cousin, who apparently left them during the first missionary journey. And Paul was upset at that. And so when Barnabas wanted to take John and Mark with them on the second missionary journey, Paul said, no way, I'm not going to take this guy. And Barnabas said, no, we need to take him. Thus the argument. So the practicality of a message like today, I think is obvious since all of us have been In conflicts, right? And I think they're particularly difficult to manage. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, they seem to have mutual love and respect for one another, but after this argument, they separated and went in opposite directions in terms of a missionary journey. And it seems the same can happen for us with friends that we can have something, or even family members, we can have something that would come between us, and then there's hurt and bitterness, and separation. You previously had a friendship, but now there's hurt, there's blame, and there's a great sense of loss and grief if the relationship tanks. And going through this minefield of such emotions feels like, you know, you've just been through the ER and you need triage, right? And when emotions run high, the probability of staying objective is quite diminished. Wouldn't you agree with me? Uh, we usually project ourselves as the victim when we have conflicts. We retell the story and make sure that we're the victim or that, you know, we're a hero one way or the other. And it's not that we have to deny that we're experiencing deep hurt That's not my point. But our scrutiny is usually one-sided. We scrutinize the other person. Now, if they would just quit being such jerks, if they would just ask for forgiveness, if they would just admit their guilt, then we'd be okay. But we're not near as quick to demand of ourselves such actions or to scrutinize ourselves nearly like we do with other people. When I keep uncovering the offense, the evidence for an offense done to me—that's on me. That's a problem I'm having with forgiveness. Hey, I think you would agree with me that when we truly forgive, that that's emotionally difficult. It is emotionally difficult. Why? Because it demands that we get rid of our emotional pacifier, as we're sucking on the offense of others, right? We have to release control, release the right that we feel we have to get back and to vindicate. So forgiveness means I am acutely aware of my own need to inspect my own heart. James provides some insight here. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, this can lead to murder, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And here he's inserting God into this now. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Like I said, forgiveness is emotionally difficult when you face your own crud. Because sometimes it means that's what the proper response is that James just said. Clearly, the focus of this passage is having an accurate assessment of ourselves when in conflict. And who can make a more accurate, precise assessment of us than God? The idea is that our, our own self-interest can inhibit us from seeing ourselves in the truest light. It's not that God doesn't love us, He does. It's not that, you know, we're not made in God's image. We are. All of that is still true, but we can be selfish and we can put ourselves in a position of hostility toward objective truth. And by the way, who is truth? God. He's the one that determines what is objective, what is true. So what he says about us is true. But yet we want to change the narrative, right? It's kind of like, you know, you ever been in a mall And you have the big glass case, you got all the stores there, there's a little red dot. And what's that red dot say? You are here, right? Now, can you imagine the wisdom of taking a razor blade and just uh, scraping off the red dot? And then take a magic marker and put a red dot near maybe the store you want to be at. Does that make any sense? Of course not. That doesn't change your position. You're still where you're standing. <laughs> All right. Healthy Christians are those who agree with God. You are here. So when you start with your own pride and independence, and then you recognize that because God says this is part of the problem, you're allowing some objective truth to enter in. And then you can experience reconciliation. We're to resolve to look at this passage that we're going to take a look at here in Acts 15 and take a hard look at ourselves. This is not for finger pointing. This is for us to look at our own hearts, all right? So the, the good news is we're going to look at the rest of this chapter. The bad news is that was all just an introduction. I haven't started the sermon yet. So we got another 90 minutes to go, so hang on, all right? Let's all stand as we look. At Acts 15. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Barnabas and Paul. So Barnabas means what? Son of encouragement. That's right. The Bible tells us he was a very generous man. In fact, at one point, he had sold some real estate, and he donated it to the cause of the church to share the gospel, to see the kingdom of God expand. A generous man. Acts 11.24 says that he was a good man... Full of the Holy Spirit and faith. That wouldn't be bad to have that on your tombstone. A good man. Full of the Spirit and faith. When many in the church found it just too difficult to believe that Saul, the persecutor of Christians, the man who sent Christians to jail or had them killed, had now been converted on the Damascus Road. It was Barnabas who came alongside Paul, and he vouched for him among the other Christians. He came alongside, he tried to encourage Saul, and he was basically giving a defense for the conversion that God had wrought within the soul of this man. That was Barnabas. He had been a true and loyal friend to Paul. He traveled with Paul on the first missionary journey, and along with him was his cousin, John Mark. And Acts 13.13 tells us that while traveling from Paphos to Perga in Pamphylia, that John left the missionary team, and he returned to Jerusalem. We are not told as to why John Mark did this, and so anything we say would just be conjecture. This is what we do know. He did not finish the trip. He didn't complete the job. So we look at these two guys, Barnabas and Paul. Was Barnabas more insightful in seeing the potential in people because he wanted to take John Mark on the second journey? And Paul said, no. Was Barnabas blinded to the faults of John Mark because they were related There's some conjecture that Barnabas maybe was one of those guys that's just more motivated by relationships, where Paul, type A, laser-focused on the mission, all about the organization, the health of the organization. Was that why this conflict happened? Verse 38 clarifies that these two leaders contended over how much weight was being given to John Mark's departure. Barnabas either took less offense to John Mark leaving, or he was quicker to forgive, whereas Paul could not separate the man from his record. The disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, it was sharp. It was pointed. And it got to where they went their separate ways. You ever seen two people argue in a church? Go their separate ways. Now, the opinion of Barnabas apparently had always been one of support for John Mark. He's always behind him. Always that son of encouragement. Paul's opinion, though, fluctuated. Paul lost confidence in this man. And then we read in 2 Timothy 4.11. Check this out. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. He is very useful to me for ministry. Well, what in the world happened between Acts 15 and 2 Corinthians 4? Something changed Paul's mind. Did he all of a sudden just decide to forgive John Mark? We don't have those details. But this is what we can camp on. This is what we know for sure. That ill will does not have to be permanent that our low view of somebody does not have to be permanent. That people change, and therefore, our opinions are to change as well, particularly with somebody who maybe has hurt us. Woe unto us when we get dug in 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 an opinion of somebody, which is like declaring that God can't work in that person's life. Right? I mean, we make statements like this, that I will never work with that person again. Or maybe, I can never be friends with that person again. We are declaring that nothing can change. We are declaring that God cannot do a work here. Now, I have never been offended by a whale. Just let that sink in for a while, Okay. How weird is that statement? I have never been offended by a whale. Perhaps it's why I am more prone to believe that God orchestrated a whale to swallow a man and that man survived than to believe that God can fix a person and reconcile a relationship when I've been deeply hurt. I'm more prone to believe that God can swallow the whale, or the whale can swallow the man. God swallowed the whale who swallowed Jonah, who spit up Moses on the beach, and the whale died on the cross. Amen. Thank you, thank you. Bible knowledge right there. (laughs) How is it that we are so unwilling to give room to another person, to allow God to express grace in another person who has hurt us? I've done it. I'm guilty. And I got a sneaky suspicion. Some of you are too. Now, in Paul's defense in not allowing John Mark to go with them on the second missionary journey, let's realize this. Leadership is not a right. Just because a person wants to minister, particularly in such an important task as what Paul and Barnabas were going to do on this second missionary journey, doesn't mean that they're ready and able to lead. And I'm thinking that's probably what Paul was thinking in his mind. I mean, it was Paul who wrote in 1 Timothy 5.22, not to lay hands on somebody too quickly. It's a way of saying, don't commission someone for leadership who isn't quite ready. But there are some people who just demand that they ought to have a position. I remember years ago, we had a man who was demanding that he should be an elder. He'd been married and divorced three times. Now, I'm not condemning divorce as, you know, some sin greater than others. Our elders were saying, well, you know, listen, dude, uh, God bless you for wanting to serve, but there, there's a certain, you know, moral authority you give up about marriage when you've been married and divorced three times, okay? You know, we're not setting you over here on the shelf saying God can't use you, but elders have to have a higher standard. Proverbs 25:19 says this. Confidence in an unfaithful man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. Paul had a high sense of responsibility for the mission. He was driven to see the gospel spread. He did not want to get bogged down by personnel who was not up to the task. He felt like John Mark could not handle the heat is thinking, you know what? John Mark fooled me once, but it's on me if I let him fool me again. You can see some truth to that, right? So whose side do we take? Barnabas, the man who seemed to be so filled with grace and an encourager, or Paul, who seemed to take more of a Uh, a position of, you know, being efficient and, and effective. I want to submit to you a third way. This is whose side I'm on, to realize that God is at work in the midst of this. First point, God uses us in spite of our weaknesses. Now, whether you think that Barnabas was too soft, or Paul was too hard, we see that God continued to work in both of them. Barnabas, Took Mark to Cyprus and Paul took Silas through Syria and Cilicia. Now, Barnabas could have been tempted to think, how does Paul get anything done when he shows little grace to others? I wouldn't be a bit surprised if he actually said those words to Paul as they had this heated argument. And Paul would have been tempted to say of Barnabas, how could God use Barnabas when he lets people take advantage of him like that? I mean, we look at others in our life and we're probably prone to say, I just don't know how God continues to use that person. Or I don't think God can use that person. Why? Because they're so legalistic. I don't know how God can use that person because they're such a jerk to people right? And here's the thing we miss. Why do you think God is using you? Is it because you think you deserve to be used by God? Is it because you think you've got your act together? Is it because you think that you don't have any issues? I mean, when we, when we look at these things objectively, especially by turning the light on ourselves, We should be amazed that God uses us. We should be amazed that God uses anyone, right? See, this is all a testimony to how great God is, to how great his ability and grace is for every one of us. I take God's side, that he can use any of us in spite of our weaknesses. Now, I'm not okaying, being a jerk, I'm not saying you can just live any way you want, disobediently before God. There are no consequences. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying none of us are perfect, that all of us have issues, all of us are in process, and God still uses us in the midst of all that. Number two, God has a greater plan that extends beyond our immediate convenience or desires. On the surface, I think that most of us would be prone to think that There was an impediment to the spread of the gospel because Paul and Barnabas were in this argument. However, God used this conflict to split them up, and now instead of one missions team, there are two. God doubled the effort through a human conflict. These guys were not static. They were not pouting, you know, just sitting down now. They went. They continued to minister, and as a result... More people were reached for the gospel. Now, Paul and Barnabas certainly, I think, had to endure some emotional trauma by their friendship being tested. I mean, I don't know about you, but my heart and mind race, and it bothers me when I know that there's something, you know, between me and another person. Are you like that? Have a hard time sleeping. I go, now, what could I have said? What could I have done differently? That is traumatic, especially when you got two guys that were so close. Here's the thing. God is not inactive during the crisis. We usually look at the immediate pressure point and we desire relief or we desire immediate resolution. Perhaps God is accomplishing a greater work in the midst of the difficulty. Now, I doubt that Barnabas... And Paul realized that in the moment, but time made it plain that this mission was being accomplished and expanded in greater degree as a result of the conflict. It's amazing. Now, Paul and Barnabas, even though they had this fight, do you really think they were going to thwart the gospel of God? I don't think so. See, we can choose to recognize God's sovereign hand at work in the midst of struggles. God continued to strengthen the churches. In fact, it says that the Antiochian church blessed Paul to go and do this work. And we can assume that Barnabas did the same. The work went on. In fact, it doubled. God was continuing to work in spite of the conflict. Next We can trust God to work on all parties in a conflict. Barnabas took John Mark with him. Now, we can assume that on the second journey, John Mark did great. He didn't leave. And that's why Paul said in 2 Timothy 4.11 that he wanted John Mark to join him now at this last section of his life in 2 Timothy. He was in the, the Mamertine prison ready to be killed. And he says, I want John Mark to join me. He's done me good. What does that tell us? It tells us there's a change of heart. That tells us that God was working in Paul and working in John Mark. And I'm sure working in Barnabas and taught him some stuff too. God was working. Do we really think... That our small view of somebody is going to limit God? You know, you you might make the conclusion that, you know, I don't see how God can use that person because of this that they did to to me. Is that really going to limit God's activity in that person's life? Really? Do you realize, you can write this down, God is working in the people you don't like. God is working in those who've hurt us. I know it's hard. But if God gave up on you whenever you sinned, how would God be working in you at all? Right? I mean, Mark surfaces about 10 years later to associate with Peter in 1 Peter 5.13. He's then commended by Paul In Colossians 4.10. Paul's opinion of Mark was not the final verdict. He changed his opinion. Which demonstrates that both of them were growing. Listen, there are probably people. On your blacklist today. That need to be let out of the penalty box. God is still working in them. Your opinion of them is not completely objective. And your opinion certainly is not sovereign. Do you really know all the facts of what's going on in a person? Do you really know and can look inside the heart of another person and see their motive, even though we presume to know all of that at times? I think it's interesting that Paul and Barnabas could go on this first missionary journey to these places in which, I mean, they were, they were ridiculed, they were attacked, and they, they supported one another. And then they're just talking about personnel. And that's when a conflict arises. That's when, you know, they're split apart, not in the middle of the persecution, but just having a conversation about somebody, Right? Presumption, attributing motives, without objectively knowing what is in their heart, that creates conflict. Let's say you have a run in with a person, um, and you think that that person does not have the Lord working in his life. Do you really think that God is going to stop working in them because you think they don't deserve it? I mean just think of that. How how small-minded that is. God is not prone to pick up our offenses. <laughs> and we're probably better off not claiming we know who God is using and who he is not based upon our own personal hurts and experiences. So, here's some practical things that I think we can carry away from this passage. First of all, let's realize this, that conflicts occur everywhere. It's funny how the church will take hits all the time from people who say, You know, they look at maybe two Christians, could be leaders, whatever, fighting, arguing. They say, look at those Christians who have conflict. I don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. The only question I have then, really, are you applying that same logic everywhere else? I mean, are you saying, you know what? I argued with my wife today, therefore marriage is out the door. I argued with somebody at work today, and, you know, having a job is for the birds. Don't want to have anything to do with it. Really? Listen, the reason we have conflicts is because we are humans. And anywhere there are humans, there are going to, there's going to be conflict. Church, family, wherever. The deal is, we're not to be naive to think that it will never happen in the church. And are we applying godly perspective Truthfulness, humility, and grace in the conflict. We are sure to have the conflict, but how are we handling the conflict? Right? Are we communicating grace and respect toward one another in the midst of the conflict? Or are we casting a person aside, dismissing them because we have already made an opinion and we're not going to move off of that? Conflicts occur everywhere. Next, relationships and mission do not have to be incompatible. We never should feel like that we have to choose between relationships and the health of the organization. Right? We can still get the job done and still treat people with love and respect. We can be efficient and still be kind. Now, that doesn't mean we can't deal with Uh, practical, everyday situations. That doesn't mean we can't have a uh, difficult conversation, let's apply it to the church, you know, with, with another staff member. It doesn't even mean that we can't fire a staff member. All those things could be done when you're still respectful and looking for the best for a person and for the organization. Relationships and mission do not have to be Incompatible. There's no excuse for treating people disrespectfully with talk about, you know, that's just business. In the church, you can treat people well and still run a healthy organization. Next is that conflating conflict increases difficulties. Here's a simple rule. Can you imagine if we never repeated an offense, how much less drama we would have, right? I mean, how many times have we had somebody hurt us, and then we're gathering allies by repeating to other people what the offense was? We do it. I've done it. If we we can learn to keep our mouths shut, drama could be eliminated. Proverbs offers this wisdom. He who covers a transgression seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates friends. You know what I love about this conflict that we read about? First of all, I love that the Bible includes it. The Bible doesn't whitewash issues. It just gives us the facts of what happened. I love that. And number two, what it intimates for us is this. This didn't get blown out of proportion. The church wasn't... Overdramatizing this. They let these two guys try to hammer it out. We don't read of any further ramifications other than the guys going their separate ways on a missionary journey. We don't read about this conflict extending to their personal relationships where they wouldn't have anything to do with each other. We see the church commending Paul in verse 40. In fact, I think if there's anybody that you could probably point fingers at, it would be Paul. He seemed to be, you know, a little bit more strict about it. It would have been easy to have him as the fall guy, but they don't do that. They handled it well by not creating this power struggle, by not, you know, just going to one side of this personal issue. They let them go their separate ways, and they rooted for the both of them. We have to learn to keep the minor things minor because when it comes to conflicts that we often have and even the, the ones in which you know, we're raising our voices, we're getting upset about, we often can't even remember what we were fighting about two or three days after that, right? Because the issue is so small. And personal slights do not reach the highest level of importance when we are faced with a much greater mission, And Paul and Barnabas understood this. Our job is to take the gospel. We're not going to let this disagreement about John Mark get in the way of the job that we have to do. And so we read of these men and this church not conflating the conflict and making it worse. My challenge to us, my friends since we all experience conflict, is that God would give us grace, that God would give us perspective even in our most hurtful conflicts. You go to the person who hurt you and you try to hammer it out. You have the discussion just like Paul and Barnabas did. We don't see any record of them making it worse trying to gather allies, trying to create a split in the church. None of that happened. So I think the challenge for us is to realize that God is working even with the people that have hurt us the most. See what I mean how difficult forgiveness can be? how difficult it is to give up the right to express vindication to somebody who's deeply hurt us. We see that in practice here. I love this passage. It's so real to life. It's so true to what actually takes place. You have this great and glorious victory of the Jerusalem council declaring that grace is king and days later you have a Donnybrook with two of the Churchill leaders. But it was squelched because they dealt with it as two mature believers, and God multiplied those efforts. Let's pray.